our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 41, or you can follow along on the screen above. Oh, you cannot. So turn in the Bibles. We have Bibles. Starting in verse 29. This is part of Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Turn now to our Old Testament passage, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's go together in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would be present with us, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear your word, that we would understand and know that you are God, that we would know who this Messiah is, that it would change us, that your gospel would be ever present with us, forming us, conforming us to the image of your son. Lord, we pray that this would be embedded deep in our hearts, that we would love one another, that others would see us and know that we are yours, that you are the true Lord, the God over all. We pray for understanding. We pray for wisdom. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen. So far going through the Psalms, we've looked at a wisdom psalm, and we've seen that Jesus Christ is the true wisdom. He is the fulfillment of wisdom. We've seen a psalm of, of uh, confidence, seeing that even though life is difficult and there's hard and dark places in this life, we can have confidence and sing out to the Lord, I'm confident because you are with me. We've seen a psalm of lament, crying out to the Lord God in the darkest, the deepest depths of sorrow that we feel in this life. And today we come to a messianic psalm. This is a type of psalm that refers to the Messiah. That's what that refer, word is referring to, messianic being the Messiah. And that word Messiah, in turn, means anointed one, one who has oil put over their head. And that is specifically referring to one who is anointed as king. Because the Israelites are looking forward to a king who will truly solve their problems, who will truly be a good and righteous king to them, who will rule over them justly, not be a wicked king who does what is self-pleasing, not a wicked king who turns a blind eye to, to injustices that are done around in his territory. Not a wicked king who allies himself with other wicked men, but a good king. This was promised to David by God through the prophet Nathan when he said that your throne will be established forever. But was David going to live forever? That was never a thought. He knew that there would be a descendant, that coming there would be a promise fulfilled, and that this throne would be held forever. And so a messianic psalm is looking forward to this king, this promised anointed one that everybody's looking forward to. We need this king. And that term, Messiah, is actually why we call Jesus Christ. 
That is the Greek word for anointed one. It's the same exact word. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah that the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms are about that are pointing to. And so I hope it is clear from the other Psalms that when we look at the wisdom, when we look at the lament, when we look at the confidence, all these things, it all culminates in Jesus. It all points to Jesus. It is all fulfilled in him. But with these psalms, there's a special correlation. There is an oracle. There is a promise. There is a, a, a prophecy pointing forward to specific things about the Messiah, about the promised king. And that's what sets these apart. You can see this in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 22. You hear the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words of Christ on the cross. You read about them casting lots for his clothing. You read about his pierced hands and feet. All words from the Psalms, all pointing forward to what Christ would eventually do for us. And here, in this Psalm, we actually see the most quoted psalm uh, in the New Testament, one of the most quoted uh, passages in the entire Bible, particularly this first verse, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You could even hear that language in the Apostles' Creed where he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. But what is the good news to us? It seems strange to look forward to a king, yet this passage is looking forward to a king. As Americans, a king doesn't sound like good news to us. What we, what we want is we want to be free from a king. We're, we're so used to a history of bad king after bad king after bad king that when we hear that, we just want to throw all of his tea into the river, you know? It's, it, or where, <laughs> and... Um, it's, it's not our style, but that's because we're used to bad kings, self-serving kings, murderous kings, liar kings. But the promise of God has always been for a good king. And Christ fulfills that promise. It says in the Shorter Catechism that he is our king by subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. In those promises, we see a powerful king who is united to his people, who protects them and governs them rightly. And if there's any enemy against them, he protects them. There's almost nothing worse than a bad king. But surely there's nothing better than a good king a righteous king, a king that has power to actually do what he promised, to truly protect his people, not just for his lifetime, but for forever. The text has a second promise. It's not just that we're looking forward to a king like David, but in verse 4, we see the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're not just looking forward to a Messiah who is a king, but also a, a king who is also a priest. Because even in the glory days of Israel, when they had the priests and they had King David, things were not as good as all the promises of God 
would lead you to believe. All the promises of God said that they would, this family would be a blessing to all the earth, and yet Israel is this small place. How are they a blessing to all the earth? All the promises of God were not fulfilled through David. They were not fulfilled fully through the Levitical priests. And so we have these psalms that look forward to something better, to a true fulfillment of what God has promised. Those are the two focal points that we're going to be looking at. God's explicit promise here for a king, and then his promise for a priest. We'll look at what that means for us, why that's good news, why we need that. Why this is a song that we can sing and pray with joy and anticipation. And how Christ fulfills those things. We just read in Acts 2 how Peter used this to to preach to the people. He said, he used this psalm, he quoted it. He said, the Lord says, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is this sort of explicit New Testament attestation that lets us know that this is not just talking about an old, a, king, a king in the days of David. It's talking about something future, or at that point future. He said David was given a prophecy, that he was a prophet, that he spoke knowing that his descendant would fulfill this with knowledge that this was about a future Messiah. In the language here, you'll see Lord and Lord, but they look slightly differently in the text. The first Lord has all capital letters, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the second word just has the capital L, and the rest are lowercase. The reason for that distinction is because the first one is not the word Adonai, Lord. The first one is the divine name of God. It is always translated, Lord, because nobody would say his name. It's too holy to say. And so they would just say Adonai, even though it is, or they would say Hashem, meaning the name. And then it says, so this is the divine covenant name of God, this personal name of God. The Lord says to my Lord, and this word is Adonai, with the possessive on the end, my Lord, Adoni. And so The God of heaven says to my master, or my king, or my lord, this is a human referent, divine referent speaking to a human referent, sit at my right hand. To sit at someone's right hand is a place of honor and power. To sit at the right hand of God, there is no place higher than that. He's calling for him to sit at his right hand of the most powerful, of the most honored, of the most high God himself. He calls on this Adoni, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. A while back we read in Joshua as he was conquering the land of Canaan when he conquered kings of the kings he would put his foot on their neck 
that was how people would symbolize complete dom domination and military victory, that you would have your foot on top of the other person, that they would basically be your footstool. And so he says, God says to his Messiah, the one he is sending, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I do these things for you. Jesus also quotes this passage, this particular verse. In fact, you'll see it in uh, Matthew twice. You'll see it in Mark. You'll see it in Luke. You'll see it in Acts, as we just read. You'll see it referred to in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians. You'll see it about nine times in Hebrews. But when Jesus quotes this, he says in I'll read the version in Matthew 22. He says, Now the Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. That makes a lot of sense. You're reading the passage and interpreting. He is the son of David. He's following the promises. Continuing in verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The significance here is that David says something. He calls this other person Lord, who would be his descendant. Now, your descendants are, in a sense, your inferior. Not, not, that sounds like a very derogatory word, but in, in, in terms of age and descendants, the younger gives honor to the older. Why, the younger calls the older Lord, not the older the younger. This is backwards. Why is David calling the one that would come after him Lord? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? And he further strengthens the claim by saying, in the spirit. David says this, in the spirit. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't make an error. In fact, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him as he writes this word. This is an infallible word of God. The Lord said to my Lord. Jesus continues, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Showing the explicit nature of that argument. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. In Mark's account of the, this same uh, passage, he says that many came to believe because of what Christ had spoken there. That this Messiah, this is that we're talking about something greater than a human descendant. We're talking about not just a son of man, but also a son of God. a king that would be greater than David. Though David was a great king by human standards, but he lived, he sinned, he murdered, he committed adultery, and he died. And even the best king, if he's just a man, can only live and rule for so long. As the psalm continues, he expounds on this and what it would look like. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. 
And this is showing that the Messiah, the one to come, the king to come, would have God's authority to rule. The scepter is the sign of authority, the power, the, the right to rule. And this coming from the Lord himself, from God who created all things, who has authority over all the world. He is giving authority to this Messiah. And then it says, rule in the midst of your enemies. I want to note that this psalm is being addressed from us, the speakers, or from the psalmist, David, to the Messiah, right? The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. We're singing praises and honor and glory to this Messiah figure. And then this last sentence of verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. This is an imperative, right? But we're not necessarily telling him what to do because in Hebrew poetry, sometimes the imperative is used as just very exuberant language. So it's this very uh, excited future tense. You're going to rule in the midst of your enemies. This looking forward with anticipation and joy that even though everything is wrong around us, even though that, that we can look in the world and there's corruption and pain, there is sickness and death, there are those who would take advantage, who kidnap and do wicked things. We could say even though there are those who would oppose what is right, God is going to rule. and He is going to do what is right. He is going to come and step in he will not be dissuaded by them. He will not be conquered by them. But he will rule in the midst of them. Your people, in verse 3, your people, continuing to talk to the Messiah, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So there's a contrast that before, the enemies would be ruled over, not because they chose to, not because they wanted him to, because they want to do what they want. They want to take things for their own advantage. They want to do things wickedly. But your people will offer themselves freely. They won't be coerced. They won't, have, they won't be your footstool, but they'll go to you with joy. Look, there's the true king, the one who's going to rule in righteousness. That's what we want. That's what we've prayed for. That's what we've been promised. Yes, he's here. Let's go to him freely. Let's go to him with joy. It says that they will come in holy garments. In thinking in military terms, if they're coming to him as an army, we read in Joshua, each time before they went somewhere, uh, as they started the conquest or after Achan's sin, they had to consecrate themselves, right? That was the language used, make yourselves holy, set yourselves apart. And here's that language again, their, their garments are set apart. But as we look forward into the promises that are fulfilled in Christ, we see images in Revelation that all those who are brought to him will be clothed in garments as white as snow. That we are given holy garments. It is not that we have made ourselves holy, but in the presence of our true king, he clothes us in goodness, in light, in righteousness. Not something that we could do ourselves, but something that he does for us on our behalf. This Second part of verse 3 is much debated because it's very poetic language and it's very confusing. It says, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
I'm not going to go into every single interpretation that people have about these verses. But what we can see in general is that from the beginning, the womb of the morning is probably to do with beginning. From the start, the dew of your youth will be yours. What does do do after the... Yeah, it sounds funny. What does it do after the morning? It only lasts for a short time. There's dew on the grass at the beginning, and then as the sun comes up and the heat of the day is there, it evaporates and it's gone. That's what happens to all of us. We have our young vigor and strength. We have the dew of our morning, but then it will fade, and we will grow older, and we will not have that vibrancy, and one day the sun will set, like King David. He did not retain that youthfulness. He did not retain that vigor. In fact, he lost his life, as we saw Peter saying, look, we know where he's buried. He's, he, he, this promise did not apply to him. But for this one who is coming, that will never fade away. He will have his youth, he will have his vigor, and it will not fade away from him. The dew of your youth will be yours from the beginning until forever. This points to all of these places that we look at concerning kings that don't stand up. Kings that don't rule in righteousness. They don't want people in holy garments. They want people to do their murderous bidding. And even the ones that are good, they, they fade over time. Even the mighty King David, with his sin in Bathsheba, he faded. But the promise of God is that he is giving us a good king. One who will stand the tests of time. Not just now, but for forever. In these next verses, we see God's promise for a priest. Not just a king, but a priest. And then there's some, I would say, violent language that we don't always like to read and hear. But I'm going to read this section again as we go through it just now. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And talking about what a good king does is he doesn't kowtow to the wicked. He stands firm, and he does just judgment. The problem is that none of us can look at God and say, I'm, I'm just, I'm good enough, I don't have the stain of sin within me, so I'm one of the good guys, those are the bad guys. We can't say, well, look, I'm an Israelite, or uh, I've, I've got the right birth, or I've got this right pedigree, so I, I don't deserve judgment, just the other people. The problem with only having a perfect king is that there's nothing standing in the way from him conquering us because we too are sinners. We too are fallen. We too have the stain of 
of sin, that seed of sin that grows into murder, Jesus said was anger and hatred. Do you hate your brother? That's the sin of murder. All of us have experienced hatred and anger. Yet all of us would say, can, can easily say, well, I'm not a murderer. But that's the same seed. It's the same disease that God wants to be rid of. He wants a good creation. He created it good. He wants to restore it to goodness. And he has created a way to do that. Not just by sending a king who would come and conquer, but by also sending one who is a king who is a priest, who would bring God and man together, who would take that seed of sin out of our hearts, who would cleanse us free and make us new. And as we see this language, I'm reminded of when in John 6 the people saw Jesus and what he'd done they were convinced this is the Messiah this is the king and they were going to make him king right then we're going to enthrone him and make him king right now what a huge mistake that would have been Christ slipped away from them because his work wasn't done why wouldn't he let them make him king? Because he had not done the work of a priest yet. He had not gone to the cross yet. When Christ goes to the cross, he takes our sin upon himself. He dies the death that we deserve so that we might in turn have life. He takes that on himself so that we might have life. Without the work of a priest to bring us close to God, to pay for those sins, then what we have is a king who is perfect and righteous and holy, and that is a terrifying thing for someone who has sin in their heart that is not dealt with. And so what Christ does in love is he slips away. He does not let them make him king yet. Because he wants to serve them and love them, to care for them, to pay for their sins, to do the work of a priest. So this language of conquering that we see should bring to mind our need. This, these are things that we don't, we don't want this sort of thing to happen to us. We want to be the sort of people who have our sins paid for, who are brought close to God. Well, let's look closely at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews really goes to town on this verse. If you read chapters 5 and uh, 7 and 8, it is just full of how Christ is the true high priest. How we don't have a, a high priest who is unsympathetic with, with uh, but rather one who is tempted in every way as we were. We have a high priest who, who really goes in between for us. We have a high priest who is not many, many, many priests, but we have one. We have one priest. We don't have a priest that will die. We have a priest that will live forever. We don't have a priest that has to offer, sin, uh, offer sacrifices over and over and over again, but rather a priest who offered one. And it was effective. And it was done with. There's no more need for blood. 
one sacrifice. We have a priest who is a priest forever. That we don't have to worry about, oh, well, who is going to succeed after him? Or, or will he die and then I don't have any, anybody to stand between me? We have one who is there forever throughout all eternity. Him uniting us to God. These are all arguments we can see in Hebrews about who Christ is according to this verse. He talks about who Melchizedek is. He talks about how Melchizedek uh, was a priest and a king. This is the, the man who Abraham offered a tithe to. And he says, how much greater of a priest is this? Even the Levites give him tithe through their father Abraham. Again, these are the arguments that you can read in Hebrew about how Christ fulfills this. That he is this priest king, the true king of righteousness. This was a felt need for the people in Israel that they would read this psalm and need this psalm and pray this psalm that they need a true good king. That they need a true good high priest. Not a temporary fix, not a patch, not something that needs to be offered over and over and over again, but a true high priest that will really reconcile us to God. This is a need that we feel today. Even in a land without a king, even with people who don't feel the need for priests, with a holy God, we ought to be yearning for those things, for a good king who judges rightly. We're not enough to do this on our own. We cannot subdue all of this earth. We cannot make everything good on our own. It is Christ the king who does it. We cannot unite ourselves to God either. It is Christ the priest who does it. He alone is the sacrifice, sacrificial lamb. He alone is the high priest. He unites us to him. It's amazing that we can see the depth of truth that God has foreordained from the beginning, all through even the, whole, the Old Testament, that this was the plan of God for you. That this is the plan of God for all the earth. That he would make things right. As difficult as, as things may seem now, there is a reason for hope. There always has been a reason for hope because of the promise that God has given through his son. And so let us go to him in prayer and thanksgiving. Lord, we confess that we are not enough to save ourselves. We are not enough to save our friends or our family. But Lord, you have given us hope. You've given us promise. You have given us a good king, Lord. We pray that you would instill in our hearts a desperate love for this king and a knowledge of him that we would submit to him not because of force, not because of fear, but Lord willingly and freely because Lord we need a good king. 
Lord, we pray that you would still instill in our hearts a true love for this priest that you've given us in Jesus Christ. That we would know the depth of our sins and through that know the depth of love of God. That he would lavish his love on us. That he would take us to himself. Lord, open our hearts to receive this. That we may live in love toward one another and to those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.